You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Welcome to Recode Media, Peter Kafka. That is me, and that was an interesting week. As you know, Silicon Valley Bank failed a few days ago, and basically everyone in tech and lots of people who aren't in tech but care about banks and the economy spent the weekend worrying that everything might go very badly. It looks like we've made it out of that, and we're not sure, so fingers crossed. In the meantime, I've got two interviews for you today. The first is with Dan Premack, who does excellent Monday reporting for Axios. We talked on Wednesday about what happened at Silicon Valley Bank, what it does or doesn't mean for tech companies and other startups, and what happens next. And then I've got a chat with Benedict Evans, the smart and provocative tech analyst, about a lot of different stuff. A lot of it's about Amazon and its giant ad business, which we don't nearly talk about enough. We talk about whether we should even be calling that an ad business, but it's it's a giant freaking business. Um, if you are a regular listener of this podcast, this is right up your alley. What Benedict and I don't discuss is Silicon Valley Bank, and that's for a simple reason. We recorded this one a few weeks ago, and neither of us could see into the future, as you know. Okay, here's me and Dan Premack. Talking to Dan Premack from Axios again. He's one of the people I always rely on to explain what happens to money in the tech world. Welcome, Dan. Thanks for having me. I'm talking to you at 3 o'clock on Wednesday, March 15th. By the time you hear this podcast, things may have changed. Panic. There'll be panic by the time you hear this. Um, and thank you for taking time because I know you got a busy schedule right now covering multiple bank collapses. But I want to talk about the tech and startup world and the VC world. Right now, we know the government has said to the depositors, we're freaked out last week. Don't worry. Your money's okay. Supposedly, everyone is, has been able to get their money out. Do you know if there are any hiccups there or has that been pretty smooth? It's been pretty smooth. On Monday morning, there were some people saying it was taking a little bit of time, but but by today, everybody can get their money when they want it. Okay, good. So that's a non-issue. That's good for me because my company was a Silicon Valley Bank customer, lots of other folks. I want to talk about what happens next, but before we do that, I want to go back into history. I've written about this. You have as well. Lots of others have talked about why so many startups use Silicon Valley Bank. They were good about working with startups that are, had non-traditional sort of business profiles. They were good at working with foreign founders. They were, were good to uh, startup founders and helping them achieve loans. They did a lot of venture debt, which traditional banks did. I get all that. I've heard people say that. I still don't understand why so many startups were connected to Silicon Valley Bank. Um, they could bank other places. Why, why such a concentration there? Two reasons. One, one of the things you said, and I, I don't think we should overlook it, the fact that they not only would fund non-traditional models, they would answer the phone for for non-revenue companies or, or for very small companies, right? If you're, you know, the whole, you know, two people in the garage, you often couldn't get a big bank or even sometimes like a, a regular regional bank to return your call. You, you didn't have revenue. You didn't have collateral. Uh, they didn't want anything to do with you. Silicon Valley Bank would listen. Silicon Valley Bank would help you open an account. Silicon Valley Bank would work with you. And so that's one reason so many companies were in. But then a founder would say to somebody else, there was a lot of word of mouth and a lot of network as part of this. Also, you 
you had a lot of venture capital firms that when they funded their companies and they were working with founders maybe who had never started a company before, had never had to get a corporate bank account, had never had to get a, a line of credit, they recommended SVB in part because those relationships are so long. You know, Silicon Valley Bank has been there for decades. And also often this is where venture capital firms themselves were doing their banking, sometimes where their partners were getting their mortgages from. That's that's where I wanted to head with this because I, I hear from startups over and over. They say, oh, well, they, our, our VCs steered us towards there. Was there any sort of relationship between the VCs and Silicon Valley Bank that we ought to be looking at? Were, were VCs incented to steer customers to that bank? I don't think there's any uh, evidence that they were incented. I, I just think, you know, what you really want from a banker or from a bank when you are a company is some sort of relationship. And if things go sideways or you have a question, someone will pick up the phone. And, and because you know, if you were, and I'll make this up now, you know, if you were a Sequoia portfolio company or Founders Fund portfolio company, you're pretty sure they would pick up the phone. And the VCs were sure of that too. So they wanted to steer people to that. Now, was there some additional, were there some additional ties in some cases? Yeah, absolutely. SVB was a limited partner in lots and lots of venture capital funds. That's absolutely true. And as I said, a lot of venture capital funds themselves did their own banking, their own fund banking. So, you know, some, it, sometimes the money, you know, you could be a venture capital fund. You could do a capital call to invest in a company and the limited partner would have their money in SVB. They would send it to your account at SVB, at which point the venture capital firm would send it to the portfolio company's account at SVB. That was, it's a little incestuous, but it's not, you know, it's not a kickback sort of situation. It's just the bank they were using. Do we call it cozy or do we call it conflicted? I call it cozy because I, I don't, it's not like there's any evidence that people were paying higher fees or anything to use SVB than some of the competitors. Okay, fair enough. I was poking around this weekend because I knew that BuzzFeed had been working with them and I was trying to find evidence <laughs> of that in, in uh, an Edgar filing. And I may have misread it, but I did look at it several times. There was a filing there that made it look like there was a, re a deal with Silicon Valley Bank that required BuzzFeed to keep 25, at least $25 million with that bank that turns out to now to be about half their cash hoard. And you did hear about these covenants that required yes. um, startups to keep cash there if they were taking out venture loans. But that is is that out of the ordinary or is that standard? No, that that's standard. And actually, it was one of the big concerns when things froze up, right? Because, you know, on Friday or Thursday and then Friday morning, people were like, you know, we're pulling cash out or companies are pulling cash out. Companies that had loans, who had lines of credit with Silicon Valley Bank, couldn't do that uh, without essentially becoming in default on their own debt. Uh, that's common. Uh, maybe it should become less common and people should think about it, although no bank is going to want to remove the covenants for the purpose of enabling a bank mm -hmm. run in the future. Uh, but no, that, that's fairly standard in the industry. Uh, it, again, it's not something anyone had ever really been too concerned about until a few days ago. So let's talk about what happens in the future. If you were banking with Silicon Valley Bank on Friday, you no longer are. You now have one or multiple other banks you're working with. How does this affect the, the ordinary startup day to day? Well, for starters, you could still be banking with Silicon Valley Bank. You absolutely still could be, and, and plenty of companies are, and some might have even put money back in. Silicon Valley Bank does exist. It, it's kind of like it's dead, but it's alive. The organization that we knew before, the publicly traded stock, that is dead. But it got taken over by the FDIC and the, and the U.S. government, and they even installed a new CEO in there. So Silicon Valley Bank does exist. People are doing banking with them right now. So you could have accounts. Lots of people are. They could even be opening accounts uh, at this moment. The question is who eventually will own it. The U.S. government does not want to own Silicon Valley Bank forever. And Silicon Valley Bank, which is kind of the shorthand really for Silicon Valley Financial Group, the bank is a piece of it. There's a bunch of other pieces too. And there's this question right now, can the government find someone to buy all of it or is it going to have to sell it off piecemeal? 
Right. And again, we're recording this this afternoon. Maybe there's a buyer before before this podcast comes out. But um, in terms of the the startups using using Silicon Valley Bank or not, does, what happens? Do you do you change the way you do business, or do you just go back to the way things were done a week ago? Well, right now, it's a great place to be banking if you're worried about your deposits because the federal government has basically said, you know, put a billion dollars in there. It's insured, right? Mm -hmm. That's not true at every bank. Uh, it is true right now at SVB because of who owns it. I, th I think it really comes down to the individuals, right? I mean, these are... For the most part, you know, this isn't like a, you know, a checking account that, you know, you've got $10,000 in or something. The, the, these are really kind of relationships. And if your banker, the person who you've worked with for the last six months or six years is still there, then you're probably going to stick with that place. If the banker leaves, then you might not. And, and when SVB was put into receivership, most of the employees were asked by the FDIC to stay on for at least 45 days, and they were actually paid uh, – they got a pretty good incentive to do so. They were told they'd get paid basically one and a half times their salaries to stick around. Uh, hourly workers, uh, it was a little bit different, but the sal salaried ones, a time and a half. So most of the relationship bankers are still there. Now, are they all probably at least looking for other jobs? Sure, but this is not the best time in the banking sector. What about the the venture debt that we were talking about? It's not it's not entirely what Silicon Valley Bank did, but it's one of the reasons that a lot of the startups did like them is they would lend to them. What are you hearing from startups saying, oh, this is, you know, we think we can actually replicate these loans somewhere else, or this is a once in a lifetime thing and now it's gone and we're gonna have to think differently about how to fund our companies? I think it goes back to the bankers. Are, are there people who you have relationships with uh, and you trust them and want to work with them? You know, the, the venture lending is a little bit tricky but because I, I, you don't know ultimately who's going to own those loans. But the reality is, is that – how can I describe this? It's possible that the bank and the loans are going to get separated anyway. Like mm -hmm. if anybody's got a home mortgage, uh, so I, I've had the same or the same mortgage. I bought the house I'm in ten years ago. That mortgage has been owned by like seven different people. I yep. think or I'm seven on, different I'm companies. On my third since, bank, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, there are a lot of people who want to just buy SVB's loan book right now and not touch the bank. So you don't really know who's going to ultimately own the loan. But if you like your banker you're probably going to work with them right now because the terms don't change even if the ultimate owner of the of the loan changes. Yeah, I guess what I'm getting at is there's a lot of like, oh, this is going to change tech or the ripple effects in tech. And I'm just – it seems to me that in the very near term, you just go about your business the way you were going about it a week ago except now you know where your payroll is. Yeah, I think the I think the big difference is going forward is going to be cash management, corporate cash management. And, and this is going to be something, honestly, that venture capital firms have to do a much better job of for themselves and for their portfolio companies. The problem for SVB or a big problem was the massive percentage of uninsured deposits they had. In other words, deposits of over $250,000. And there are ways for companies that have you know millions of dollars in the bank to manage their money so they don't just look like cash deposits. There's something called Intrify, which is a way that you could have all your money with one bank, but then that bank actually kind of chops it up and lots of different banks hold it in $250,000 or less chunks. There's lots of things you can do with cash management in terms of investment. So I, I think it will change how companies hold their money but I don't think it's going to change necessarily the relationship with the SVB bankers per se. Although some of those bankers might leave their jobs. This sounds like something like if you have a CFO or whoever's in charge of your accounting, they have to deal with this. The rest of the company just goes about and does business the way they were always going to do it. Yeah, although I think also it's now going to be incumbent on venture capital firms, particularly for, you know, a lot of startups do not have CFOs for quite mm -hmm. some time. Uh, so it's going to be incumbent on the venture capital firms you know, particularly with new founders and ones who aren't necessarily financially savvy when it comes to this stuff, to ensure that they do, uh, if for no other reason, just to protect their own investors. I want to talk about the VCs to, to wrap this up. Lots of tweeting amongst VCs back and forth. 
a lot of VCs said, yeah, I absolutely told my portfolio companies to take their money out. Others did but don't want to say that publicly or didn't want a paper trail. A few said, please leave your money in. And then, you know, once things got resolved, more or less, a lot of like, well, this is going to change who I do business with. So if we if we extract David Sachs and Jason Kalkanis from the mix because they're easy targets and, and you know, you can debate the size of their, their influence in the Valley, do you think this, this permanently or even near term changes the way VCs work with each other? Is there real bad blood? I think the bad blood is going to go away real quick because everyone got their money on Monday. I, I think, you know, today we're taping this on Wednesday. For a lot of companies, this is payday, right? It's the 15th of the month. I think that if the money had been frozen and companies weren't making payroll today, I think then the bad blood, because that, that would be alarm bells everywhere and it would be companies actually failing and people actually losing money. What people actually lost was their weekend. Um, and, and maybe, you know, they had to, you know, open the Pepto-Bismol a little bit and, and drink a little bit more. I don't think it's going to change anything. And again, I, I'm very... I'm sympathetic to those who are kind of the uh, the hold the wall people on SVB over you know the weekend or Thursday and Friday you know don't pull your money out. Less sympathetic to those who you know said that publicly, but were doing something different privately. But for those who were telling their companies to to pull their money or at least significantly um, split their money up, that was prudence. If if if, it, if on Thursday you you see there's a bank run and you think that this company won't be able to make payroll on Wednesday, it's almost incumbent on you to tell your company to protect itself. And and the idea that you're going to pick goodwill towards SVB over the survival of the company, I think is a little bit No, insane. there was a quote I got from one of the VCs I talked to. It said something effective, like, look, if you think there's a 0.01% chance that this is going to impact your business, take your money out. There's no upside in you keeping it there. It's a bank. Can I add one thing? There's this argument that, well, it's the whether it be Sachs or, or, or others, you know, we're the ones who caused the run on the bank. I don't think VCs are that smart. VCs didn't, I don't believe, cause the run on the bank per se. VCs saw a run on the bank. Did they participate in it? Sure. They were sprinting too. But I, I don't think it's a group of VCs who woke up and thought, oh, let's kill SVB. They saw money leaving. I, I'll tell you, at about 12.30 on Thursday afternoon, I was having a, a conversation with two colleagues, and we were discussing whether we could call this a bank run or not, because from the outside, we didn't have actual access to the deposit information. And so I just tweeted. I, I put out a tweet that said, hey, any information on people pulling money out of SVB? If so, uh, my direct messages are open. I got flooded immediately yeah. with people who had already done it. That was before we knew about Founders Fund. That was before we knew about KOTU. I mean, even though they had obviously had the conversations, people were pulling their money. That these firms were reacting, and the executives themselves, the startup founders and executives, were also talking amongst themselves. They didn't need to be told by David Sachs or Peter Thiel or anybody else. And you pointed out that Peter Thiel was not involved in the founders' fund thing. No, well, but regardless, they did not need to be told by a VC to take their money out. No, and there's two other factors to remember from Thursday. Uh, one is for firms and that were trying to pull their money out, there were so many withdrawals that SVB couldn't properly transfer the wires. So so this next thing you heard wasn't just so much that, you know, your founder peer is pulling his money out. He's also saying, by the way, I tried to pull my money out at 11. It's one o'clock and I haven't been able to. Well, that freaks you out. That's that's like if a friend says, hey, I went to the ATM and it doesn't work anymore. Mm -hmm. Like, crap, that now you go get your money out. And there also was this webinar with um, Greg Becker, the CEO of SVB, where he basically said, people are panicking, but stay calm. All which is, well. is yeah. not what you say during a bank run. So- what do we take from all of this? You put it very well. You know, you, you lost your weekend, depending on where you were. Does this affect how startups, how the tech world, how the VC, Silicon Valley world works? Or is this just about a mechanical thing about 
cash management and we can all just sort of move on. I think it's the latter, but I, I would caution on the move on, not in terms of how startups and VCs are going to operate, but in terms of the overall financial system. You know, we don't yet know that what the Fed and the FDIC and Treasury did on Sunday night actually staved off a banking crisis. We don't know yet. Uh, you know, we woke up on Monday morning and all these big regional bank stocks got pummeled, you know, down 30, 40, 50 percent. Things got better Tuesday, but we're now on Wednesday. Uh, Credit Suisse, and, and it's not exactly the same, but Credit Suisse is is getting destroyed. There are and, you know, and they've the been in the crosshairs for a while. They have been, they have been, but there's still questions, and we don't, you know, and we don't know what ultimately happens with SVB. I, I guess I'd say I feel a lot calmer than I did Sunday afternoon, or a lot more sanguine about the banking sector. But I don't think we're out of the woods yet. Okay, I'm I'm uh, silently uh, knocking on wood that you that we are getting out of the woods. Dan Premack, go back to work, get some scoops from Axios. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again to Dan Premack. We'll be right back with Benedict Evans, but first, a word from a sponsor. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Benedict, you tell me how you introduce yourself, either on a business card or in an email or on Twitter. Well, yeah, we were, we were joking earlier, I should say I'm a, an influencer or a thinkfluencer or something. The sort of pedestrian description is analyst. I try and explain, understand what the new important questions or trends or sort of thematic shifts are going on in tech and in the things that tech is changing. So what is generative machine learning, but also how does the stuff that we were excited about 20 years ago flow through into media or retail or advertising today? Um, Sometimes I, I sort of call myself, think of it as sort of translation. So I sort of translate between, you know, what are the kind of the hardcore fundamental things that are coming out of Silicon Valley and what does that mean for a big Japanese retailer or a big European media company? What's the kind of the, the backwards and forwards of all of those shifts? Who's who's paying you these days? Are, uh, are there consumer electronics companies that want your insight, investors? Yeah, well, so... I think Mark Andreessen called called Andreessen Horowitz a venture capital, a, a media company that monetized through venture capital. And so I do, I suppose it, fundamentally I do three things. So I have a weekly newsletter and then the sponsorship in that. And then I also do a, a premium, a paid version of that. And then I give presentations at events and board meetings and things. And then I've got some sort of advisory relationships and things. I'm, I'm a venture partner with a, a, an early stage fund in London called Mosaic. And I do a few other things like that. You worked for Mark Andreessen. and I want to talk to you about that. But first, I want to talk to you about a presentation you do yearly. It's sort of, here's your big thoughts for the year. This is free. It's on your website. You guys can Google it. Um, you can say that you've read it. It's 104 slides, but it's pretty easy to consume. And if you say you've read it, or if you have read it, you will sound smarter. But I did want to dig into some ideas with you that you brought up in this sure. in the presentation that are specific to media. You have a line in here called rent advertising and pricing were all separate budgets. Now they're going into one. What does that mean? Well, so there was a line a couple of years ago that rent is a new CAC, rent is a new customer acquisition cost. And I think the way to sort of, I suppose there's sort of maybe two ways two sort of levels of abstraction to think about. One of them is that today, 
a brand or a retailer will ask themselves, should we put our money into search advertising or brand advertising or free shipping or lower prices or advertising on Amazon or better returns policy? Or should we open stores? And maybe you've already got stores. Should we open more stores? And so you can say today, should we open stores in that state or just advertise there? And that wasn't a question you could ask before the internet. There was a version of it, right, which is paying for shelf space at a retailer. That's an old, an yeah, old yeah. So, and that I mean, we, we, that's sort of one way of thinking about what Amazon advertising is, which we, we can maybe come on to. But I think the core of it is that you have sort of two, you have kind of two fundamental things you're trying to do. There's kind of a logistics problem, which is how do, how does the customer physically get the product, and there's a discovery suggestion recommendation product, which is how do you suggest to them that they might want it, and obviously some kinds of retail mainly exist to tell you that you might want the product. I mean, famously, Apple retail is basically a marketing operation. I think back when they were disclosing the numbers, only about 10% of Apple revenue was actually coming from the stores. The purpose of the stores is marketing, Mm -hmm. is to tell people that Apple product is great. And so is that, and, and as opposed to kind of the other extreme where there's some kinds of retail that are entirely exist as the endpoint to a logistics chain. Like, you know, your local grocery store is not really there to market the products to you. It's there to be the most convenient place to get a a bag of rice or, or, or a bottle of milk. And there's a sort of a vast spectrum in between that. And, you know, do you put your money into slotting fees? Do you pay to be put on the end cap? Do you pay Amazon to put you at the top of the search results? Do you do a TV campaign? Do you have lower prices? Do you do a marketing campaign with Walmart? Do you build your own retail? And all of those things sort of sit in one spec- in, in a spectrum. And, and the, the barriers between those used to be a lot less fluid than they are today. Because, you know, you have this, you know, do we have a physical store is actually a question now in a way that it wasn't in the past. Um, Obviously, of course, should we have our own stores or other people's stores is also a question. So Nike has shifted to, I think, now 40% of Nike brand sales go through Nike's own channel. I think there's a sort of a higher level point here, though, which is you've got this sort of interesting, like, sort of philosophical challenge as a consumer or as a brand now, which is that there's basically infinite product and infinite media. So, you know, in the past, you know, go back before the internet, there's only a certain amount of space in any given retailer. Mm-hmm. And there's only a certain amount of space in Vogue or Car Magazine or the New York Times or whatever it is for the editorial or and the ads. however many second ads are. Yeah, how many? And, and then, of course, there's only so many people that can afford to buy the back page of Vogue or do a buy a nationwide TV campaign. So you had these sort of fundamental filters or constraints on, like, how much product there could be and how much stuff there could be. And, you know, you can... You know, you can argue against this. You can say, look, supermarkets have 50,000 SKUs, so that's not much of a constraint, but it is still kind of a constraint. Mm-hmm. There's, still a f- there's, a, there's still only a certain amount of square feet. Yeah, there's a certain building. amount of square foot. There's a certain amount of shelf space. There's a certain amount of column inches in a newspaper or a magazine or on TV that you can know that something exists. And with the internet, that kind of barrier has gone away. And so part of the point of my presentation, kind of calling it the new gatekeepers, is we have this phrase gatekeepers, which people use to refer to Google and Amazon um, and, and to some extent Apple. But I think you can actually argue the opposite, that it used to be that you actually had much stronger gatekeepers, much narrower filters. You know, there's one newspaper per city, there's a couple of retailers, there's a couple of TV channels, there's a couple of magazines. And now that's kind of exploded. And like you have this kind of wide open field of how do we create a brand as a as a company and as a consumer, like how do I know what exists? There's just kind of infinite stuff out there. And so I think that, you know, kind of sort of zooming in and out from, okay, do we put our money into free shipping or free returns or Instagram ads sort of zooms all the way out to, okay, how many cosmetics brands are there going to be now? 
you know, are they going to be way more cosmetics brands now or way less? And the answer is probably both, depending on how you look at it. And you can spin them up instantaneously, right? Exactly, yes. And this is, you know, part of this is the story of sort of celebrity brands in the last decade where, you know, if you kind of talk to people in that space, you hear kind of quite startling numbers about like celebrities that you've heard of that have private label brands that you don't really notice that do surprisingly large numbers. But you also see that in something like Shein, uh, you know, the other extreme, which is... Um, Explain what Shein is. Okay, uh, some, who, some of the listeners will know what it okay, is. Okay, anyone who doesn't have a 14-year-old daughter. So Shein is a Chinese smartphone-only fast fashion S-H-E-I-N. brand. S-H-E-I-N. Yes, and I've checked with the company. That's, that's how you pronounce it, Shein. And so they have a smartphone app. They add five to 10,000 SKUs a day. Five to 10,000 products a day are being added. Yeah. And so Zara, which was like the case study of, oh my God, it's amazing how many products they can release every year, was doing, I think, something like ten to 20,000 products a year, depending on, on how, who you ask. You have to be slightly careful about that number because the sheer number is global and includes the Northern Hemisphere and the Southern Hemisphere. So it's not, it doesn't reflect what you would see in one store in one country. But the other part of that is that that's then coming from a kind of distributed network of Chinese manufacturers that are where they're ordering on demand. So they're not making 20,000 products and making enough inventory of each of those to put in a thousand stores around the world. They might only make 50 or 100 of them and then they wait and see what the order flow is and then they ship it to you direct. And so there's this sort of shift in what you can do with fast fashion if you don't have to have thousands of stores. Now, there's obviously a whole conversation about sustainability of fast fashion and so on. But kind of the and Sheen would actually argue they have lower wastage because they don't have to have all that inventory. But what you're doing there is changing how you would build that business. And one of the things I did in the presentation was kind of very deliberately juxtaposed um, the so I have a chart which took an enormous amount of time to get, which is the number of SKUs in grocery stores back since the 60s. Well, basically, the U.S. grocery stores, typical grocery store, went from about 5,000 SKUs in the 60s to about 50,000 SKUs now, which is partly a story of barcodes and UPCs and computers because you could actually manage that. Mm-hmm. And then the next slide is um, look how many TV shows are being produced now, which I think most of us have seen these charts that, you know, back in the 90s, it was sort of forget the number, but it was like 50 or 100 scripted TV shows were being produced in the USA, and now it's like 2,000. Mm -hmm. And half of that is streaming. And again, that is when you go to streaming, you're not constrained by the number of time slots you have anymore. And then the next slide is Shein, which is 10,000 products a day. And in fact, and now according to sort of various sort of leaked financials, they've now got more revenue or as much revenue globally as Zara or H&M from nothing five years ago. All I can think of as someone who works for a media company that still depends on advertising for our revenue is this sounds like our, our pricing is going to get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. The more the more options people have, uh, the harder it is for us to price something at a premium. Is that a reasonable conclusion? So maybe two interesting conversations here. One of them is the growth of what people are calling retail media or merchant media which is Amazon did $38 billion of advertising last year, which is bigger than the global newspaper industry, also bigger than Prime. And there's this sort of gold rush of, so Walmart did $2.7 billion last year. I think Uber did $500 million run rate. Uber just started. Uh, yeah, just started. It's very annoying, by the way. You, you, you look for your car, and then meanwhile, they're bombarding you. Yeah, exactly. exactly so, what you don't want. So there's several things going on here. One of them is you realize that you have inventory. And if you have a store, that's not really ad inventory. But if you've got a website that millions of people are going to, the website is it could be inventory. Secondly, it's first-party data. And so with the whole push towards privacy and consent and you know, ATT and the cookie apocalypse and everything else, like if you go and search for a product on the Walmart website, 
Walmart is allowed to know that you've searched for that mm -hmm. and show you an ad, and then they have some sense of the attribution, and so they don't get kneecapped by GDPR and CCPA and everything else. The third thing is, incidentally, is the margin structure, which is, you know, advertising is much higher margin than retail. Retail has got like 3% margins. Advertising has like 30 or 40% operating margins. So um, you can have a very disproportionate effect on the bottom line of a big retailer from quite a small amount of advertising revenue. The second thing you could say, kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier, is to say, okay, is that advertising or is that marketing? How is this different from paying to be on the end cap? It's exactly the same. Right? Yeah. And is it meaningful to not to argue about the difference? Actually, you know, you, you probably shouldn't get too hung up on arguing the definitions there. But you could also say it's price discrimination. You know, this is a way of getting people who've got a higher ROI to pay Amazon more. And in a sense, it's a way of getting them to bid for it. So instead of, you know, what Walmart might have done, which is you've got a team of hard-nosed negotiators who squeeze a few more basis points out of different brands, now you just say, look, you know, this is, you know, you, you want to be on the front page, you can bid what you think it's worth. And mm -hmm. so you allow people to bid against each other, as opposed to you as a retailer trying to price it. And so in a sense, again, those definitions sort of break apart. Is this advertising? Is this marketing? Is this price discrimination? What is this? And then as a brand, you might say, okay, should I spend margin to be on the front page of Amazon search results by buying an ad, or should I spend margin to be on the front page of Amazon search results by giving free shipping? Like, what's the difference? Well, it's all kind of how you spend to get to your customer. And to kind of zoom out a level, so you have this kind of conversation, what is Google's TAM? What is Google's addressable market? And say, okay, so they've got whatever the number is, like 40 or 50% of US advertising spend in total. But they're not competing, just competing with TV budgets. They're competing with retail rents mm -hmm. and marketing and shipping. And they're competing with the amount of money that you spend on credit card interchange. And, you know, found a study the other day that returns fraud is like 80 or $90 billion a year. Okay, well, that's in the mix as well. It's almost like everything below the gross margin line for Procter & Gamble Everything after it leaves the factory door is sort of now interchangeable. Do you do TV ads or do you give more margin to Amazon? Well, that depends. And it's do you believe the Procter and Gamble's of the world are thinking about it that way? Are they still thinking, no, this is what it costs to get to the store. This is what it costs to buy this much reach in Cleveland. Well, so um, there's a story last year that Unilever's CMO is now managing their, their, their direct-to-consumer business as well. And so you've kind of got this question, should we allow definitions and org charts to shape how we spend the money? Or should we sort of step back and think, well, what is it that we're trying to do here? You know, obviously, another of the sort of great waves of the last five years is like everyone who has a consumer brand now thinks they should have a direct relationship with the consumer. And the challenge there, of course, is that just because you think you should have a relationship with me doesn't mean that I know who you are or care. And not all of those people will get that, you know. It's there's there's something that's been puzzling me for a bit, maybe the last six months, which is people like my my employer, but much bigger companies, Warner Brothers, uh, and then obviously all the tech companies are all saying, "Hey, we've got a problem. The ad there's an ad slowdown. Mm. The growth rate slowing, or the actual real real ad uh, volume is is slowing down. It's a problem for us. The ad holding companies, the IPGs and Omnicoms of the world, are still doing very well. Are they participating in this economy that you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not deep into the the, 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 nut, the nuts and bolts of WPP, um, at least not anymore. I mean, there's a, there's a general point here you could say, which is I think a lot of macro conversation in the last nine months has been very contradictory. Like this, yep. this company will say everything's going horribly and that company will say, well, we're not seeing anything. Um, there is a, it does seem in general to be quite a mixed picture there. Yep. But I think this question of definition is, it gets to the heart of this. I mean, I had this um, this conversation with the head of a, of a holding company a couple of years ago on Necker Island. There you are, has that there you go. name drops. And he said, you know, the, you look at what's happening to TV, the viewing is down, 
the budgets are not down, so CPMs have gone up. Yep, so that, that existed for a while, but that was yeah. sort of easier to understand, which mm. is people still wanted to be on TV. There weren't good alternatives. You could also see, and so the pricing went up, even though the, the, the mm. reach was lower. Um, but you could see that was not sustainable, and in yeah, fact, it turns out not to be. Yeah, I mean, I think the the generalized way I would I'd kind of look at this whole space is like all the old value chain breaks apart, whether you're Procter & Gamble or a media company, and no one quite knows where all the new cards are going to settle and what the new configurations are. And so, you know, there's this conversation in streaming, which is, okay, how many people are going to have that direct consumer relationship? And the, the generally, the kind of the argument is, well, it's going to be Disney plus Netflix plus one or two more. And mm -hmm. who are those going to be? And what's that going to look like? The same, you could argue the same in consumer goods. So there's an awful lot of companies that are, and it's actually the same in TV. There's a lot of companies that are a big consumer brand, but actually a B2B business. Like they've never actually sold anything to a consumer. You know, like they, they don't sell makeup. They sell trucks full of makeup. Mm -hmm. They don't sell TV shows. They sell, you know, they sell TV shows to, to TV networks. And now because in, it, it's become sort of in principle possible to go direct, everyone is sort of either trying to do it or thinking whether they should do it. But it doesn't follow that everybody's going to be able to do that. And you're going to have obviously kind of another wave of aggregation back into, you know, intermediate layers. I mean, do you think, and you've got a line there about, uh, and you mentioned it just now about not just Amazon, but Walmart and Uber all mm. discovering that they've got these high margin businesses there. Does that change the way they will run their initial core business once they realize, oh, there's this this is the second business that actually is much higher margin. It's mm. much, we make much more, it's a much better margin for us to sell ads than to uh, help people book rides in, in a car. Do you think that changes the way they run their, their original business? Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't think one can generalize across all of those industries. I mean, there was a great book I read last summer about the emergence of Chicago by, I think the author's called William Cronin, perhaps. And I mean, this is like this classic book that you people anyone listening to this who knows it will know it and he has a kind of a piano. I don't know it I'm assuming you're talking about the city not the band yeah it's about okay. yeah well I don't I didn't know there was a band called there Chicago you there you are that it's about you know for lumber and beef and ice and railways and all of that kind of stuff is the city of Chicago was sort of the funneling point between the cities of the east and the agriculture and natural resources and there's a um there's a PL of um breaking down a, a, a dead cow a carcass, and basically the, the the point of this is that 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 Armour, the meatpacking company, is making a loss on every cow, and then they make it up on the byproducts, which you can only do when you've got the scale that they have. So they're basically selling beef for less than it's costing them, and then making it up on the fact that they've got hundreds of thousands of cow bones and hooves and stuff that they can boil down and turn into other stuff. And you know that's how Walmart works. And it's now how Amazon works. You know? I'm trying to make a good cow hoof joke here, but I cannot do well, it. Well, but this is, you know, I mean, people have looked at Amazon's P&L for years and said, well, you know, clearly the actual core retail business is being subsidized by other parts of it. Like, right. Until AWS started being disclosed, everyone still claimed that AWS was losing money and being subsidized by retail. And now the new conventional wisdom is they're an AWS company that happens to also Yeah, sell exactly. Stuff. Except then if you look at the ad business and you say, well, they did whatever it is, um, $38 billion last year. Well, what operating margin is that? It's got to be like 50 or 60% operating margin. And there's no capex or minimal, fairly minimal capex on that. So it's probably producing more operating income than AWS. Then, you, of course, you say, yes, but like, you can't separate that out as a separate thing. And is this advertising? Or is this really marketing? Or is it price discrimination? In a sense, it kind of doesn't matter. It's like it's another $38 billion that's coming into the company. It's the same as Prime. You know, how would you build a P&L for Prime? Like, well, there's the money people pay and there's the cost of the content, and the cost of the shipping, but also there's all the incremental revenue that's coming into it because you've got Prime. And so 
I suppose kind of what I'm getting at is you have to sort of look at it as a whole package. It's like, what are they doing? You know, how much money do they make from, they make no money, like Walmart makes no money from selling gas, except that selling gas pulls people into the store. So how would you do P&L of their gas business? Will you, what would that mean? And I think it's kind of the same for all of these. You have this super, super low margin business at its core. And then you may, you, you claw your way back to profitability with everything that you try and layer around the sides of it. Switch topics here. You had another slide that, that caught my eye comparing the amount of money YouTube is spending on creator payouts. Basically, mm. they give away about 50% of each dollar they bring in to people who make the videos for yeah. them. And I think you compared it to Disney expenses. Well, yeah. Disney so programming. I had a chart of like the top 10 budgets. So, you know, Disney and Discovery and um, right through to kind of Apple and Amazon. And then I said, well, there's something missing here. And let's put, let's put YouTube in, which is not disclosed. But, you know, clearly that's kind of meaningful. I suppose there are two comments here. One of them is there's a chart that actually followed that, which I was sort of, I'm always surprised by which slides people screenshot and mm -hmm. which slides they don't. And the slide that came after was I said, well, we know how many views Mr. Beast gets. Yep. And you can kind of calculate what's the average. I sent that screenshot to a Mr. Beast manager yesterday. Okay. You can kind of calculate like what's the average length because, you know, you can see the minutes. And then you say, well, if you get 75% completion, 50% completion, 25% completion, how many hours is that? Netflix publish every fortnight the hours of their top 10 shows. So you can put the two of those on a chart. And well, there it looks like, you know, on a rolling kind of two week basis, Mr. Beast is getting sort of as, as much as much hours of viewing across everything he does as like a top five Netflix show. The idea that uh, a person on the internet has as big an audience or many, as many views or whatever, or more reach than mm. something that's popular on TV is an idea we hear about a lot. And then the TV people often correctly point out that we're comparing apples and oranges and the numbers aren't quite right. But the idea that people on the internet are now commanding mm. as much attention as what we used to think was the biggest thing when broadcast TV, that's not new and but it was still was helpful for me to see the Mr. B stuff yeah. but the 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 expense I think caught my eye because even though I write about this for mm. a long time I still forget to add YouTube into the streaming wars mm. when we're talking about budgets and how people are going to keep up but they're absolutely spending the same amount as a Disney or a Netflix or in that they're in that range yeah it does certainly looks like it and and maybe a couple of sort of interesting things within that so Netflix as Nielsen does this number on viewing hours and mm -hmm. viewing hours of YouTube and Netflix are roughly the same I mean going back to kind of almost kind of comparing with Shein, one of the things that kind of occurs to me is that there are companies where the internet or tech is basically a channel that lets you break into an industry. But what you're actually doing is native to that industry. So Shein is using the internet as a channel, but it's an apparel company. All the questions that matter for Shein are clothing questions, even down to is it sustainable. That's the same question that Zara has. It's not a tech question. Um, the same thing for Netflix. Like, as far as I can see, all the questions that matter for Netflix are TV questions. Like, Do people what, like this show? How yeah, much does it cost to make? What, what shows? What's the right structure? What do you pay the writers when there's no residuals? Um, and yeah, maybe the compression is 10% better, but like, if all they were showing was reruns of Cheers and Friends, no one would care. And this is what, what we've seen with Disney. Like, yeah, maybe the Disney app isn't as good, but that doesn't really matter. It's about the shows. It's a TV company. It's the, and the, so the questions for streaming are all basically TV questions. They're not technology questions. The same thing for Sheehan. The same thing for, this is kind of the bull bear question for, Tes for Tesla. You know, are the questions that matter here software questions or car industry questions? And the core bull argument is that what matters is the software and the bear argument is, no, it's a car company. It's a subscale car company. It's and right now the bears are starting to win that argument as more, and I'm totally out leaning up forward, 
leading beyond my skis here, but as more and more electric car companies are, are reasonable competitors to Tesla. Yeah, so there's a sort of, I mean, we could we could talk about Tesla, but there's a, there's a thesis here that actually this is going to play out kind of like Android phones, except that Tesla isn't Apple, it's just another Android car company, it's just another Android company, that basically these things are all sort of interchangeable, and what electric does is just allow like a whole wave of new companies to come in, but there's no fundamental differentiation. I think the kind of the core, the core point here is, is, is sort of, I don't, I think the kind of arguing is that a tech company is a very kind of pedantic like drunk student in a bar kind of a conversation that's my podcast that would be a good good title for a podcast like drunk students in a bar mm -hmm. um what's more interesting to me is to say well what are the questions that matter here i mean this was always the thing at a16z when you you kind of well you'd say well, there were some vcs that looked at all the d2c products and said this is technology company they're using technology to change this industry and there are other people who would kind of look at it and say i don't know it's a handbag company it's a shoe company it's a clothing company it's a food company like maybe it will work but ask the handbag people because there's no software here youtube has wanted to be a big player in tv mm. for a very long time and at various times they've said we we have this many viewing hours and mm. we should we should we should have more and we should be priced the same as tv and sometimes they they back off the the youtube as a as a content buyer mm. being in the same race as Warner Brothers and Discovery, Warner Brothers Discovery, et cetera. Well, this to is me, the Apples, interesting. Well, this is the apples to oranges comparison, which is interesting. I mean, I think part of the sort of picking up on what, on what I was just sort of thinking about, sort of my, my train of thought was like, Netflix is a TV company. YouTube mm -hmm. isn't a TV company. That what I was getting should at Should we like, consider it? I mean, well, it depends. And, but, and or do they, do they benefit from not being considered I, a TV company? I, I suppose what I would, the way I would I'd sort of think about it is that Netflix isn't really changing the nature of TV. They still go to LA and buy TV shows. Yep. And particularly Apple, which is what perplexes me about the Apple TV Plus thing, is all Apple TV Plus is doing is going to LA and buying LA stuff from LA people. There's yep. no Apple to that at all. Whereas YouTube is actually doing a different thing about what is it that you're making and how does it work. And you could say the same thing about TikTok. You know, TikTok, which to me seems to, it seems to me competes much more with YouTube than it does with Instagram. Mm -hmm. They're changing what video is and how that would work as much more actually than Netflix is. And it's actually much harder to compete. It's much harder for a media company to compete with, with YouTube and do what YouTube does than it is for them to compete with Netflix and do what Netflix does as Disney and Peacock. You have kids, I have shame. kids. When you watch them consume... HBO and YouTube still doing the same thing. They're still watching stuff on a screen. So one's are. longer, one's shorter, but it's all stuff they want to watch. Yeah, they are. Watch. And they'll sort of scrub back and forth and watch the favorite bit in the show over and over again. But from the creator side, you know, Netflix goes to LA and buys TV shows from TV people. And they do it in different ways. And basically, it's TV. I mean, I remember that whole moment where they were talking about how much AI there was. And then we get this story of how much their commissioning editors are being paid because they know the right people and go to the right restaurants. Yeah. <laughs> this is an LA company. It's not a San Francisco company. YouTube is, they're not doing that. YouTube has actually constructed this whole other network around how this stuff works. I mean, this is sort of the, the Mark Andreessen software is eating the world thesis, which is that, you know, Uber doesn't sell software to taxi companies and Airbnb doesn't sell software to hotel companies. Airbnb is doing something that hotel companies can't do. Whereas Netflix isn't really doing anything that a TV company can't do. And I think that's a kind of a useful distinction to think about. I think I'm correctly describing you as a blockchain and metaverse skeptic. Well, metaverse is an interesting word because I think the last thing I read about metaverse, I said the trouble is when someone says it, you have absolutely no idea what they mean. Fair. But I have the least popular opinion on blockchain, which is I think this is a potentially useful technology that can't be used for half the stuff that people talk about. And so when I used to go on, whenever I would go on Twitter and say, here are 10 reasons why this blockchain, particularly Web3 thing, I'm kind of skeptical. Mm -hmm. I would get a whole bunch of people screaming at me in my mentions saying, here, you're an idiot. You just install Metaverse and then you'll get it. Yeah. 
And then I would kind of turn around and say, so here's why all the NFT stuff that happened last year is kind of dumb, but I don't in principle think that NFTs are dumb. And then I get a whole bunch of people saying, you're an idiot, you're a shill, you know, you're just owned by Mark Andreessen, you're just pumping this stuff because you're making money from it. And it's like, yeah, actually, no. You know, <laughs> there's a kind of, there's a sort of religious war around, around blockchain. And I think that the most sort of practical thing one can say about it is like, you know, in five years time, this might remake software, but it's not really ready to do anything yet. Mm -hmm. But in principle, I think it's really interesting. Metaverse, I think there's sort of two ways you can describe Metaverse. There's one way you can describe it, which is to say this is basically like saying mobile internet, but for VR. And so some combination of VR and AR becomes the next universal device after the smartphone or something close to it. And there's like billions of people have AR and VR, and that's kind of their main computing device the way a smartphone is now. And if that happened, well, what would what would that change? Because we wouldn't just be kind of using smartphone apps, but floating in the air in front of us and like other stuff would happen around that. And what would that mean? And so that's kind of one way of defining metaverse. I think the other way of defining metaverse is it's a bit like that phrase information superhighway um, from the early 90s, mm -hmm. if you, you remember that, which was like, it's 1991, you work at MIT Media Lab. You've noticed that like tens of millions of people have a PC now. Like on the whole world, there's maybe like 20 or 30 million people have got a PC now and they're all going to be connected to networks and they're going to have color. And imagine that color and graphical user interfaces and they'll be connected to networks. And what would that mean? And you get a whiteboard and you write everything you can imagine that might happen. And then you draw a box around it and you call it the information superhighway. And who will build this? Well, like New York Times Company and Bertelsmann and Disney and AT&T. And here we are 25 years later, we're all kind of doing all of that. We're doing multimedia interactivity and graphical user interfaces and stuff, but like not like that, from, not from those companies. Right. They're still participants, but they're minor yeah, in the scheme of things. Exactly. And so this is sort of the, the, like the broad definition of metaverse is it's sort of imagine almost literally anything cool you think might happen in tech or wish would happen. Put it in that bucket. And like write it all on a whiteboard and call it metaverse. And so this is how you get people saying, well, you know, NFTs will be crucial to the metaverse. And how will politics work in the metaverse? And we need a new regulatory environment for the metaverse. And to me, it's like, um, you remember that Chrome extension that replaced millennials with snake people? Mm -hmm. It's kind of like you should have a Chrome extension that, that just sort of replaces metaverse with my fantasy for the internet in 20 years. So you remain skeptical on the blockchain, but I, I think I, I associate with you being with you being bullish or very interested in VR and goggles. You're a big fan of Magic Leap. This was mm. the much hyped company that raised a ton of money from Google and others. And yes, now, basic, now, not, now not, not doing as well as people It's not doing well. You, you said this is amazing. Everyone, everyone who says it's wrong and doesn't get it. Are you still enthusiastic about people putting on goggles or some kind of headwear and experiencing the internet that way? So I think there's always this sort of challenge in trying to predict like what is this thing that doesn't exist yet going to look like and you always have to ask like you know is it just that i'm older now so i'm not excited by this stuff in the same way anymore and the answer is probably yes i think there's a sort of and I, I remember like when i was an internet i was a mobile analyst back in the early 2000s and the question you would always get is what's the killer use case what's the use case of 3g 3g and this was a time when it was absolutely not apparent that everyone was going to have a mobile device using the internet. It was not apparent that this would be universal. An awful lot of people thought this is going to be like 5-10% of people and most of us will just have a phone that maybe has a color screen. And I remember like just saying like the, the killer use case for, 3G, for having the internet on your phone is having the internet on your phone. It's just everything. And I think now when, when you look at VR or AR and there's, sort of, there's a lot of people who kind of think that they merge into one in some way, which again is like saying, will you have a PDA? Will you have a smartphone? Or what will it look like? What's the device? No one knows. 
I think there's, there's one sort of deterministic view that says you have the demo, it's amazing, clearly this is the future. It's sort of like being shown an iPhone in 2000 and you would say, oh my God, this is amazing, everyone's going to have this. The counter argument to this is, imagine being shown a PlayStation 5 in 1980 and you would say, oh my God, this is amazing, this is transformative, everybody's going to have this. Guess what? The install base of games consoles is like 200 million units which is not nothing, but it's not a universal device. Mm -hmm. And most people look at a games console game or Steam game, a high-end PC game. Most people look like hardcore AAA games and say, that's very pretty, and then walk past and don't care. Like, most people don't care about games. Like, certainly not that kind of game. And so the kind of the challenge for VR is you can say, okay, you have the amazing demo. What is this for that I'm going to use all day, every day? You know, Emma, is this going to replace Zoom and meetings all day, every day? Are we going to shift to new models of applications that use this? And I kind of struggle why you would want Salesforce in 3D. Like, why, why would that be better? Like, it's easy to see why is it useful to have Salesforce on your phone. It's not quite so easy to see why it would be useful to have Salesforce in 3D. And again, that might be like looking at a spreadsheet in 1982 and saying, why does this need color? which is not an obvious, there's not an obvious answer to that. Why do spreadsheets need color? Like, what's that for? Why does it need a graphical user interface? It works really well. So there's this always, it's like, are you just kind of saying the future is wrong because you don't get it or you can't make that imaginative leap? I think the core challenge with this stuff is like, you've got to make the imaginative leap to think, okay, this is how much better the devices are going to get. They're going to get really light. They're going to get really cheap. You're going to put it on and it will actually look real and there won't be the screen door and you won't get Disney. And if I could actually put on a pair of goggles that would make it look like Mark Andreessen was sitting right next to you right now and it like really looked like he was there and you could just forget that you were wearing the goggles. Okay, that's leap one. Leap two is, okay, then what? Is that actually useful? Do I actually want to do that? Or is this kind of like looking at a Nintendo in like the early 80s and saying, yes, imagine what it will be like when the cars look real. Okay, the cars look real now. Most people don't care. Mm -hmm. So there's a challenge there in thinking, yeah, is this just because this is cool? Is this the next universal thing? And it also requires you to imagine what it's going to be like. Because uh, literally the, the goggles basically don't exist yet. They're going to start mm. rolling out over the next couple of years. You're still going to have to imagine the first Apple headset. You're going to have, they're going to add, they're going to say to you, "This is very expensive now and kind of crude, but imagine what it's going to be like down the road." Which brings me to well, so a, this is, yeah, well, I was going to say this is also like um, it's going back to kind of blockchain. And you know, one of the exasperating things in the kind of conversations around blockchain is you have these sort of two equal and opposite fallacies. And the first fallacy is people looked at these technologies and they said they wouldn't work, and they worked. Therefore, when people look at this technology and say it won't work. They're wrong and it will work. And this is fairly obviously a logical fallacy. Like just because that other thing worked doesn't mean that this thing's going to work. But equally, you can't look at something that doesn't work and say, well, this is crap now. Therefore, it will always be crap. Yep. You kind of have to dig in and say, okay, is there a path for that? What are the reasons why this isn't good? Is there a path for those to get solved? When they get, if and when they get solved, what would happen? What would that mean? I mean, the analogy I used to use was like, imagine looking at an airplane in 1905, like clearly you've got this fundamental breakthrough and at least you're going to be able to fly like a couple of hundred miles, a mm -hmm. couple of, even if you didn't realize we were going to get to jet airliners, you could, you could easily see like you're going to be able to fly a couple of hundred miles in these things and this is going to get a lot better. The contrast is imagine looking at a rocket pack in the 50s or 60s. Very cool. It flies for 28 seconds because that's how much hydrogen peroxide you can carry on your back. How do you fly for too much for two hours? Well, with an awful lot more hydrogen peroxide than you can carry on your back. So I guess that's just not going to happen. And like, yeah, it didn't. 
And so that's sort of the, the puzzle you have to think about looking at VR or looking at, at blockchain or something is sort of, are you just saying this doesn't work now, therefore it will never work? Are you saying, well, the internet wasn't very useful in 1987 and it got more useful, therefore anything else that doesn't look very useful will get useful? What does that mean? I'm wondering if we can apply the same sort of rubric to, to the AI moment we're mm. having now. And again, I don't really understand the technology behind it. I'm trying to- It's all Greek to me. I'm trying to speed up on it. But one thing that occurs to me is a big difference between AI and crypto a year ago is there is ChatGPT. You can, anyone can use it, can put in a question, mm. can get an answer, can understand what that looks like. Um, and by the way, the fact that the, a lot of media people understand immediately how this mm. will or won't affect their business. And it's much more tangible and thus much more exciting because even if you can't predict, you don't know where it's going to go, you know that it's a real thing right now that could be used. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, like, you know, it's like looking at the iPhone in 2007 as opposed to looking at WAP in, in 2000. You don't have to make anything like as much of an, of an imaginative leap to, th to think about what this would be. You know, it's also sort of riding on cloud and social and the web and everything else. So you don't have to go and like buy a new device and set mm -hmm. something up and install stuff and get an account or anything. You can just go and type and like, poof, magic, there it is. And clearly, you know, it's on a kind of the accelerating part of an S-curve and it's kind of very obviously getting better all the time. The thing that I think people are puzzling about is it's like this is self-evidently going to be very useful in lots and lots of individual verticals. So, you know, self-evidently, if we get a period of this podcast where there's a bunch of noise on it, you're going to be able to use this to take the noise out. Like, obviously. Yep. And so you've already got people like launching startups to like, you know, fill in more, more music or, you know, generate me more Instagram Let's posts. Summarize this like conversation. This, summarize, so, yeah, listen exactly. for an hour. so you've got a lot, you know, it's very obvious that there's going to be an explosion of vertical use cases for this. The thing that I think everyone's puzzling about is, is, is it more general than that? And, you know, at the extreme, you've got people at OpenAI and a few other people who think like this is a step to general AI, to AGI. It, this means computers that can actually learn and think for it's themselves. Yes, it's computers that are intelligent as opposed to computers that I mean, always describe this as a bit like a computer as a washing machine. You know, you can put your dishes in a washing machine. It will wash them much better than you can. It doesn't mean it's intelligent or has any concept of cleanliness. And in fact, if you put dishes in a washing machine, it will smash them because it doesn't know. Mm -hmm. It's just a machine. It's like looking at a pocket calculator and say, this is amazingly good at math. Therefore, it's going to be able to write plays. Well, no, it's just... A machine. And this is what machine learning was. It's what most people look at ChatGPT is and says, no, it's just a washing machine. Like it doesn't know what clothes are. Um, and a small number of people that think they were on an exponential path and this is going to pop out into something that it will have sentience yeah. at some point. Or whatever that means. And that then you get all these kind of puzzling philosophical questions like, well, a dog has general intelligence. Just not the same kind. In fact, it appears now that an octopus is about as intelligent as a dog, but it's clearly not the same, quite the same kind of intelligence. Then you have people saying, well, maybe what, so like Stephen Wolfram said, like maybe what this is kind of telling you is that if it's this easy, quote unquote, to make stuff that looks like conversation, maybe language and conversation aren't as complicated or as difficult as we thought. There's an old line in AI research that AI is anything that doesn't work yet, because as soon as it works, people say, well, no, that's not AI, that's just a database. And you remember all those like dystopian movies from um, the 80s, yes. from the 70s, about like the giant computer that takes over the world. Yeah. And you look at it now and you're like, that's an Oracle box, that's SAP. That's not, no one looks at SAP and says it's intelligent. But you know, back in the 70s, people kind of did. So you've got that sort of, that sense of like, maybe all this does is say that language is kind of quite easy, but it's still not intelligence at all. And but you can almost also argue like, well, does it matter? Um, I can go to this and I can say, make me 
write me something and it comes out looking really good. The other general question, which is, is much more kind of immediate and pressing is, is this a threat to Google? Can you use this for general web search? And for that, that gets you into this error rate conversation. I don't know if you were fortunate enough to have um, Bing GPT accuse you of committing murder. I know some of Not your yet. peers. Some of your peers have got like loads of raw material out yep. of that. To me, this is actually a much more kind of intellectually fascinating problem. But it does kind of raise the problem. Like if you're using ChatGPT to answer a question where you know the answers, then it can be really helpful. So this is GitHub using this as Copilot to help you write code. If you're getting it to write marketing assets for your marketing company where you know what the assets should look like, you can see the error rate. If it's going to be 10% wrong, you can see the 10%, you can fix it. And there's other fields where it might be 10% wrong, but you don't care. Like it doesn't matter that that bit's wrong. Like, I make me a picture of a mountain and the geologist says, yeah, 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 yeah. the ravines aren't quite right. Well, yeah, I don't care. That wasn't why I made it. Um, it's to go on the cover of Business Week. I don't care if the rocks are quite right. But if you're using it for fields where you don't know what the answer is and you can't tell if it's wrong, that becomes much more of a problem. Like if I go to Bing GPT and say, what are the symptoms of appendicitis? And it's 20% wrong, but I can't tell. That's a much bigger problem. And so I think that's kind of the question in using this to compete with Google. You make money by thinking about this stuff and thinking about what the future may look like, but you don't have to be right. You're sort of laying out mm. ideas and theses and here's some trends. You did you mention Mark Andreessen a bunch. You worked for him for five years as a partner. Was your job different then when you were in a VC company that was making actual financial bets on, on the future where getting something wrong or right theoretically meant more? Well, so it's funny Funny you phrase a question like that because, of course, in venture, you expect at least half of your bets to be sure, wrong. Of course. I, mean, I think Fred Wilson had this story that in his early days, he told a, an elderly VC that he hadn't lost any money yet. And the guy said, well, that's bad. Mm -hmm. That means you're not taking Yeah, like the rule of thumb is like a third of your, your portfolio is going to be positive and one out of 10 is the thing that's going to reach. Yeah, exactly. Fun. So, you, you know, you, you, startups are sort of a machine for running experiments. And so, like, if you're not getting experiments that produce negative results and you're not doing the right experiments. So venture capital is maybe not the, the right the right use case. I mean, the, the kind of the more general point is, you know, you know, here am I sitting in my bedroom, so to speak, writing stuff and say, oh, maybe this will happen, maybe that will happen. And if it's wrong, you know, well, well, so what? I don't know. I think what I'm sort of trying to do is try and work out ways of understanding this and try and work out what the right questions might be. You know, what is it that seems to be happening here? What might determine whether this will succeed or not? And, you know, sometimes, you know, I'm just drawing kind of interesting, useful comparisons. I think you used the phrase apples and oranges earlier. I think apples and oranges comparisons are the most useful kind. You know, I mean, if I was, if you were to sit here and say, well, it's unfair to compare Vox Media with the New York Times because the New York Times has a printing press and you don't have to pay for a printing press. So you can't compare the two. Well, no, yeah, that's why you compare them. Yeah. Like, that's kind of matter that matters. So you worked for Mark Andreessen at Andreessen Horowitz for five years. Um, it was a big deal then. It remains a big deal. That company, Mark Andreessen, is a polarizing figure. Tweets are about as uh, important to the world one way or the other as, as, as Elon Musk. He's writing today about the fact that he stopped drinking six months ago. What surprised you when you got there and worked there that you didn't see from the outside that you figured out when you were in there? That's kind of a tough question to answer. I mean, because I didn't work at 10 other VC firms in, in Silicon Valley, so I don't have much calibration there. I mean, I would say, to sort of generalize the point about Silicon Valley, I find Silicon Valley is it's sort of like living in a college town um, where everyone is doing one subject. And so if you 
you're sitting in a bar, you want to start, a, you want to do a PhD. Well, of course, everyone in the room is doing a PhD. World expert and subject is, is at the next table over. You know, so you have this kind of sense of possibility and, pos and positivity and the kind of presumption of excellence and the presumption that like, of course, you're going to do a PhD. Of course, you're going to do great work. You know, the Nobel Prize in the field is there. Every, this is what everybody does. And, you know, very kind of practical sense, you know, the, you know, the 15 P you want to hire a VP of X, who's done this 15 times before, there's five of them in this room, in this coffee shop. And so you have this kind of tremendously sort of supportive sense of positivity and possibility and, 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 and resource. The downside is, you know, imagine being in a university where there's only one subject and you never leave and you never meet anybody who doesn't know what your company is doing and what you did before. Um, and so there's a sort of a lack of external perspective or, you know, it's kind of like, you know, the undergraduate that thinks that their subject is the only one that's difficult mm -hmm. and all the other ones are trivial. And that's partly just a geographical isolation of the place that you are. You know, it's like the line in a brother where art thou? you know, this place is a geographical oddity. It's three weeks from everywhere. When you've lived, when you live in a city and you go to LA and you think, wow, this place feels really walkable and well-planned and a triumph of urbanism, then you feel like, okay, maybe there's a little bit of perspective, perspective <laughs> problem here. So I think that's sort of the upside and the downside of it is that you have that that's you know, being in a monoculture for better of a word is actually very powerful and very good, but it comes with drawbacks as well. And I think there's certainly kind of companies that wouldn't get created because the people who would create it wouldn't be there. But if you want to build an enterprise SaaS company, that's probably still the right place to be. At Andreessen Horowitz particularly, I mean, you, you're very, in a sense, you're very spoiled. And this is what and other people I spoke to who used to work there have, and have, got, have left. It's like everybody you see is really, really good. You know, all the companies that come in, you know, A16Z is kind of very good at like getting the best entrepreneurs to come in. That's in a sense what I was there for and everyone else was there for is to, to, to do market that, to them, to drive, to drive that. And so you have, it's sort of like, you know, it's like you go to an art gallery and all the pictures are good. And so you don't kind of know, you don't have, a, it's kind of difficult to get a sense of like, well, what, what is the actual spectrum of possibility and, you know, what does good and bad look like and how does that work? Otherwise, I don't know, you know, it's an interesting company. You know, it was, I think, 75 people when I joined. And I think the team page now has close to 500 people on it. There's an interesting narrative there around, um, you know, obviously like a typical venture firm is like 10 or 15 people. And so there's a narrative there that they're sort of creating an Allen company, an Allen and company or something. They're creating like a full spectrum financial services company that is not really an investment bank or a hedge fund, but it's like it's a different kind of entity to to benchmark or even to Sequoia. You know, so you know, they, should they own public equities, for example? Did you, um, as a person who writes and thinks for a living, have having left that that experience, go? You know, maybe I should start investing my own money or other people's money maybe i should do this as well are you are you happy being a thinkfluencer i don't know i used to say that, that that squarespace should have a template for new seed funds like there's like, like there are 500 of them in the valley um there's, there's there's probably a personal answer to that and then there's a pragmatic answer which is that it doesn't make much sense to invest particularly writing the kind of checks that an individual can write mm -hmm. unless you're writing hundreds of them yep and, you know, writing one or, two, one or two, the model doesn't work. The model only works if you're writing dozens and probably more than dozens. And it also only kind of works at that level if you have the right kind of access to the right entrepreneurs at the right deals, which means you have to be kind of present and there and help. And, you know, look, I've never run a bath. You know, I can't help you get your first-hand clients. I don't know how to do how that works. I can't do enterprise sales. 
you know, the stuff that I'm good at. But, but you know, advice on how to get to your first million dollars of revenue is not on that. So I'm not sure how helpful I would be as an angel investor. Um, maybe that's just kind of pretty self-deprecation. But the more fundamental point is, no, you have to be writing dozens of checks, otherwise it doesn't work. And so, you know, you have to have like, you know, enough money in the bank that you can write a lot of hundred grand checks and not care if half of them don't turn into anything and the other half only turned into something 10 years later. And unfortunately, I'm not in the situation that I can write a couple of, a couple of dozen hundred grand checks. Well, selfishly, I'm glad because that means you're writing and I can read your stuff for free yep. on the Twitter, on the newsletter, on the website. Benedict Evans, thank you for coming in. Thank you. Thanks again to Benedict. Thanks again to Dan Premack. Thanks again to Jelani and Travis for producing and editing this show. To our sponsors for bringing it to you for free. And you guys for listening and writing. Keep sending that feedback. This is Recode Media. We will see you next week.